Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set your people free from our fears and sins. Release us. Bring freedom, liberator king. We confess that we are fearful people. We fear the not enough and we fear the too much. We fear the uncertainty and we fear the pat answers. We fear not having power and we fear the wrong people having power. We're afraid of what we don't know and we're afraid of knowing too much. We're afraid of the dark and we're afraid when there's too much light that breaks in. But we ask that you who says... In clear words, time and time again, do not be afraid. We ask that you would come and teach us how to do that. Free us. Cover us in your peace and your presence that assures us we are not alone and we need not fear. Perfect us in your love, which drives out all fear. And we ask this in the name and spirit of Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. Uh, my name is Chris. I get to be one of the pastors here at the H Street Church, and it is, uh, it is just my privilege to be able to do that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I'd like to lend you a Bible, and so I have some friends who have Bibles, and if you don't have one, just hold your hand up. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation, and somebody would bring you a Bible. Um, if you need a Bible in Spanish... I think you gave away a Bible in Spanish right there. If you need a Bible in Spanish because you're practicing your Spanish or your Spanish is your heart language, we have those available as well. But Luke chapter 3, uh, starting with verse 1, and we will read until verse 6. So I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word together on this second Sunday in the season of Advent. So hear the word of the Lord. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Ituria and Trachonitis. Licinius was ruler over Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priest. At this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. The valleys will be filled and the mountains and hills be made level. The curves will be straightened and the rough places made smooth. And then all people will see the salvation sent from God. This is the word of God for the people of God, and let us say together, thanks be to God. You, you may be seated. So in his TED Talk, uh, Father Gregory Boyle, who is a Jesuit priest and serves in one, of the most, in one of the poorest missions in Los Angeles, and who is also one of my favorite living saints, he's there, the guy in the middle with the beard, he says this, that Jesus calls us to create this circle of compassion that is so wide that it reaches out to the margins and we might be able to imagine a day when no one stands outside of it. Today is the second Sunday in Advent and each Sunday of Advent focuses on one important aspect 
or need even that, that we all have. And it, it focuses on a theme uh, that, that God is doing in the world as we anticipate the arrival of Jesus Christ. Uh, after all, we join with the saints as we confess in the creed that He is not coming in the way in which we expect, but He's coming in the way in which we all need. So Advent Week 1 focuses on hope. This is not just a flimsy hope. It is actually a deeply rooted hope. It is not just optimism, and it is not just a matter of positivity. This is a long-lasting hope. It is a hope that surpasses reason, and it's a hope that surpasses logic, and it is a hope that is rooted in the apostles themselves. When they said that Christ has died... Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. So, like the saints of old, we do not believe that the coming of Jesus is just about God making things better for us, like, like maybe we'll recover from a cold or something and we'll just be more healthy. But, but what we believe is that in God, Jesus is making the world new, and that God is about restoring the world. So we stand in this interesting place between the God who has come and the God who will come again, and we hope that this God will, in fact, uh, make all things new. This is what we need. This is what we long for. So today is the second Sunday in the season of Advent, and this is the theme that we focus on together, the need for peace. Uh, You heard in the prayer, and you even heard in Greg's story, which communicated to me what I see in myself, a longing and a need for peace. Our need for peace is evident. Sometimes it is deep. It's, it's an existential angst, as our psychologist friends talk about it. We have this deeply interior need that we have to combat our tortured souls. Sometimes our souls are tortured by regrets. Sometimes they're tortured by memories, sometimes by words that were cast upon us. Sometimes our souls are tortured by secrets. But our longing for peace is evident. And we are called to pay attention to the current events that are around us as well. And we see that in these events, there's a need for peace as well. We're called to look at the physical and emotional and environmental factors that threaten us all and, and when we see these things, they can be disheartening. Luke writes his Gospels for those who have experienced such things. Now, the audience in Luke, uh, that Luke had in mind when he wrote this Gospel uh, in the later half of the first century was a primarily Jewish audience. They had been shaped in a particular history through particular events, and they told particular stories. And with hope, they lived in the conviction that the ancient promises of God have just got to come true. They thought to themselves that this is their deepest conviction that God has got to show the world that God is in the right and that he meant what he said and that God was going to renew the whole world based on his promise. Quite possibly, they thought, through a a Messiah, which was a royal king-like figure, and they believed that he would come to do justice and reestablish the temple in Jerusalem, and God would come back, and God would live there gloriously. But by the time Luke got to start writing his gospel, the outlook on the landscape was really bleak. 
In fact, some scholars believe that Luke was writing with the war that ends all wars as his backdrop. And I don't mean World War I. I mean the ancient war to end all wars. It's called the Siege of Jerusalem. I've got a picture of this. This is David Roberts, oil on canvas from 1850. So in 70 AD, the Romans crushed any sense of Jewish rebellion once and for all. There were all kinds of little Jewish skirmishes to try to, main, to try to attain their freedom. But finally, in 70, the Romans had had it. And they absolutely obliterated the rebellion. They destroyed the temple, the center of their worship, and their, uh, the center of their worship and their religious identity and their national identity was absolutely obliterated. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that over a million Jews were slaughtered by the Romans. This is in the first century. This is Luke's backdrop when he writes his gospel. And as the people are reading Luke's narrative with the promises of the prophets in mind, they, they, were, convi- they, they were convinced that God was going to restore the world. They were hoping for this. They were at the same time longing for peace in their region. So I'm not sure if when Luke writes this part, Luke chapter 3, 1 through 6, if they felt very good about what was in front of them when they, when they started the reading here. Luke gave them this list that we read together of these atrocious leaders that all participated in their suffering in one way or another. It would be like, Luke's reporting would be like somebody reporting, Hitler is president, Mussolini is secretary of state, Uh, Saddam Hussein is governor, bin Laden the chief of police. Luke is like a newspaper reporter, and the first three, uh, three sentences are the terrible headlines. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was the ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was the ruler over Ituria and Trachonitis. And Licinius was the ruler over Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests of that day. This is a list of not very good people, if you didn't get it. So Caesar, Tiberius, Claudius Nero is the man in charge. He's been in charge for 15 long years. His family was one of scandal and deceit. It's been an oppressive rule, misconduct. There's been unfair treatment. Then there were these risings, and then there was suppression. At one point, he started his own city on fire, nearly burning the whole thing down. And in order to cover up his his responsibility in it, he blamed the fire on a little Jewish sect called the Christians. They were an easy target because, after all, they, ga- they were weird and they gathered in homes and they ate the body and drank the blood of their Savior. So rumors were going around that they were cannibals. Under his rule, no one, no one, no one realized or knew peace. He, like other emperors, promised to bring peace to the world and he ushered in peace by carrying out the Roman mantra, peace comes through victory. And this mantra is just a disgusting way of saying, we will match your rebellions and your protests and we will crush you. And they did. So here the people are. The people that are reading Luke's gospel, not enough to eat. There's no way to make money. They've been limited in their freedoms for worship. There's no way to comfort their children. But in the mind of Caesar, 
It was peace as long as no one stood up to him. Then there's other, a a slew of other horrible leaders, Pontius Pilate. He was the governor that washed his hands hands of the responsibility of killing Jesus of Nazareth. Herod Antipas, the son of the man who was so threatened by a poor baby in a manger that he had all male children two years old and under killed. He was the one that eventually, we read later on in Luke, beheaded John the Baptist because he didn't want to be embarrassed in front of his friends and his brother Philip wasn't much better. And Licinius was a power-hungry politician that made the scandal of our politicians look like elementary school politics on the playground. Annas and Caiaphas were the great high priests of the temple, and Jesus, when he was accused, was first brought to Annas, and then he was ushered onto Caiaphas, and both gave approval for Jesus' crucifixion. This is a rough list. Not long ago, my wife Holly sent me this clip that she had seen. It was a clip that was promoting a, a television show on the Discovery Channel called Racing Extinction. And in the clip, there was this little small bird called a grasshopper sparrow. And they talked about it being on the verge, the very, the very edge of extinction. So several years ago, researchers knew that this bird was in danger and that the existence of, of this specific species of bird was at risk. And in this clip, uh, they showed one of the, this is the, one of the last remaining males, one of the last remaining male uh, grasshopper sparrows left. This species is on the ropes. There, they were once this part of, the part of a, a vibrant part of the life cycle. And in this ecosystem that is actually a web of wonder and life and creation, a design intricate and beautiful and artistic, there he was, one of the last male grasshopper sparrows on the planet. And in the clip she sent me, he began to call out. He was singing for his mate. It was this little high pitch of a song, a little bit of joy in the beginning, but when she didn't come... You could hear the song actually dip down into a minor key. The song became a song of lament. She wasn't coming, and it was like this little creature knew that, this, that he was on the verge of extinction. And at the very mention of a long list of names like this, I'm sure that Luke's audience wondered if they were as well. We hear on television and the radio and internet ads and sitcoms that this is a season that promises wonder and joy and laughter and peace comes in Lexuses wrapped up in bows and new toys and technology and in the season that hopes for Santa and gift giving and tinsel and lights, we may wonder, like Luke's audience, if we too are in the verge of extinction. By Luke giving the list of names in this, of these people in charge during this day, we are connected immediately to the real story of Advent and Christmas, not the one that we have made up. The real story of Advent and Christmas just doesn't start out well. The Jews had tried to get out from under these oppressive powers before. They had stood their ground, they protested, they took up arms, they revolted, they met violence with violence, but immediately they were crushed. And Luke sets the scene and then begs the question for us to ask, are we like the grasshopper sparrow, like the Jews of old, on the edge of extinction. 
That's an important question for us to ask. But there is something here in the reading of even these names that can be painful. These, these names that can be painful that I just do not want us to miss. Fast reading through this thing will cause us to miss it. But if you look, you can see that, that in the middle of this list of the, of the power players, something really important happens. Something happens in the middle of this list that gives me new perspective. It's something that I think that was really intentional on Luke's part and is probably intentional by God. Luke reports this. He he says these interesting words, that while, while these guys were in charge, that during, or at the same time, at the same time that these guys were in control, something happens. And he says, God's word came to John, son of Zechariah. I don't know about you, but I like that a lot. I like that a whole lot. God's word of mercy and grace and love and hope and peace didn't come after these guys were done being in charge. It came in the middle while they were in charge, while they thought they were in charge. And you know what? That is just so Advent of God, I think. If you can use Advent as a description, that is so Advent of God. Maybe that's what Advent really is. God is in the middle. We're in this interesting space of waiting. We stand between two things. We stand between that he has come and will come again. That he has come and will come again. And the kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of God is coming. And we stand in this place between joy to the world and come thou long expected Jesus. And Luke seems to indicate to us in this little text that God is actually in the middle space. During that time are sacred words, right smack dab in the middle of the worry and the wondering and the war and the violence and the extinction and all the crap of our story, the word comes to John. Sorry I said crap. All the crap of our story, the word comes in the middle while we wait and it happens. There is God in the middle and it comes to John, listen to these words, while he was in the desert. You notice the symbolism there? And I think that while we listen to texts like this, we can infer that something happened in John. He could begin to see something. Maybe he could even see a circle of compassion. Maybe he could imagine a day when no one was standing outside the circle where it reached out to the farthest edges. And when it's, it's when he sees this that Luke said that John went from place to place. He worked up one side of the river and down the other so that all the people would be able to hear the good word. And all of them could imagine this circle of compassion, this new vision. And he invited them to turn from how they were once living and how they once thought about the world. And he invited them into a new way of living because God's circle of compassion is extended to all in the form of forgiveness. Their deepest conviction, the people, the Jewish people, their deepest conviction that was promised in Isaiah, 
that God has got to show the world that God is in the right, that God meant what God said, and he is going to renew the whole world. That was happening in the middle. Listen to what, I, listen to what, what this text says. Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, He is a voice of one shouting in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. That is another way to imagine this. He is coming. Clear the road for him. The valleys will be filled and the mountains will be made level and the curves in people's lives will be straightened and the rough places will be made smooth and then all the people together will see the salvation that comes from God. Luke is saying this just when we are on the, break, on the brink when we're on the edge, just when it seems that there is no opportunity for peace, that the power, that just when it seems that the powers of bees seem to still be in charge, it is in that where the word comes to John, in the middle of it. And today, right in front of you, in the middle of it all, the burden you carry, the weight of the world on your shoulders, the fear that has taken residence, the current events of our day, it's even in these things that John sees Isaiah's vision realized. Valleys filled, mountains leveled, curves straightened, rough patches made smooth. The circle of compassion, the compassion of God is widening and all people are being invited into God's salvation. This reminds me, this text that I read, I I was reading it, and I was reminded of a story that I heard about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I am sure that Dr. King, from time to time, wondered about extinction. But I know also that, that he saw a circle of compassion so wide that no one stood outside it. You know that King was leading a boycott in the Montgomery transit system in the 1960s after Rosa Parks was arrested for not getting up out of her seat. And while giving a speech, his home was bombed with his wife and his children, his child inside. And the next night, he says, there was a ringing of the phone and it startled him up out of his sleep. And he heard these words, look here, boy, an eerie whisper came through the receiver. If you aren't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow out your brains and we're going to blow up your house again. So King hung up quickly, his hands shaking with anger and fear. He walked into the kitchen, made some coffee, knowing that there would be no more sleep for him that night. He put his hands in his, his head in his hands and he prayed, Lord, I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I'm losing my courage. I can't face it alone. As King would later tell it, us. And yet, as King would later tell it, there was this sudden sense of calm and peace that came over him. He said it was an inner voice. He said it was the voice of Jesus that spoke to him, telling him that he must continue to stand up for what was right. And the voice promised King that he would never be alone, even to the end of the world. And from that moment on, King moved forward with confidence and conviction. Now, Christians have said that in Christ they have experienced an inner peace. Now, it, this is not something that I can explain very well, except to say this, that it is an experience of affection. It is an experience of love. And love overpowers fear. 
And you know, John, like John the baptizer, King's experience of an, of an inner working of peace began to shape a vision that poured out of him, a vision of equality that called for, for justice and peace for everyone. And after his house was bombed, an angry mob had gathered outside the house calling for revenge and retribution. As, as they, and as they shouted and they chanted, King walked into the fr- out to the front porch and he held up his hand for silence. And he tried to still the anger with an exaggerated peacefulness in his voice. And he said to that crowd, everything is all right. Don't get panicky. Don't do anything panicky. Put down your weapons. Don't get your weapons. If you have weapons, take them home. He who lives by the sword will also perish by the sword. And then he said these words, remember what Jesus said. We are not advocating violence. We want to love our enemies. I want you to love our enemies. Be good to them. This is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. This is how we prepare the way for the Lord's coming. In the middle of this life, while we wait, between these two places, God comes in the middle. And yet, we can imagine this day that Isaiah speaks of. It's a day that we wait for. It's a day where all injustices, all brokenness, all the wrong things, all of the violence, all the despair, all the discouragement, disease, death, disappointment, all of the manipulation, all of the politicking will be stopped in its tracks. There will be peace in that day, but here in the middle, it begins. When my kids were young, they they would get up at night and they were fearful that Monsters, Inc. was in their closet and afraid, uh, they were afraid, and a regular bedtime kind of routine for us would, would be to pray this prayer. It would be, help our family to be safe, help our house to be safe, help our dogs to be safe, but they would wake up crying in the middle of the night anyway, and so I would try to think of things to say to them. And, and nothing I ever said was either helpful or satisfying. Nothing relieved them of their fears until one night I remembered this, so I said it. Do not be afraid, for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which should be for everyone. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, and he is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign to you. It won't be like anything you've ever seen before or you would have ever expected. He will be a baby and he will be wrapped in swaddling clothes and he will be lying in a manger and he is with you. It's the good news that Cameron read to us tonight. So here we are and we're reading ancient texts, ancient texts like the one that that Luke spoke of, and we're reading ancient texts like Isaiah's that, that was a vision that nearly 600 years earlier introduces us to this, what he calls the day of the Lord. And we say praise be to God because like the Jews of old, we believe that he will usher in peace and that the government will be on his shoulders and he will make crooked, busted up, broken lives straight and he will make pathways smooth and he will do something to fix this mess. And there will be a people, a people that are remarkably 
ordinary, a people that exhibit peace, as ordinary as the people of the 8th Street Church that will, like John, widen the circle of compassion so that they can imagine, uh, so they can imagine the circle reaching out to the farthest point and a com- can imagine a day when no one is outside that circle. And as Father Boyle says, that will be a day when we can stop talking about peace and justice, but in fact, we can begin to start celebrating it. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? This is a vision that we long to live into. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do a work on the inside of us and give us peace. Would you enter the middle of our lives? Would you bring peace to the world? We pray for it. But John gives us this command as he walked up and down the sides of the river. He said, repent, so we do. It means to turn away from the acts that we have participated in and to be honest about how we have participated in them. We must admit and we confess to you that we have carried out acts of violence. We have been violent in our thoughts, violent in our actions. We have hated our brothers and sisters. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We've let fear and anger get the best of us, and we have wanted to carry out acts of violence when violence has been carried out on us. Sometimes it simply comes in words, sometimes it only comes in thoughts, that we must confess it. We must confess that we have not widened our circle of compassion, that we have not loved our, our neighbors or our enemies. So we confess this, our sins. And in doing so, we allow Jesus to move in. We allow Him to get in the middle and to remind us that we can move forward in peaceful ways with confidence and conviction. We long to be a kind of people that widens the circle of compassion because we imagine a day when no one is left out of that circle. And as we do that, we do this great work of the early Christians themselves. We pray for our very own governmental leaders. We pray for our Caesar, Donald Trump. We pray for our governor, Kevin Stitt. We pray for our chief of police, Bill City. We pray for our religious leaders, specifically our board of general superintendents, David Busick, Philly Chombo, Gustavo Crocker, Eugenio Duarte, David Graves, and Carla Sundberg. And we pray for our district leader, Jim Cooper. May these be a ministry and carry out the ministry of your peace, we pray. We see this vision and we long to live into it. And we're grateful that in between the space of joy to the world and come thou long expected Jesus, that God is in the middle. For that, we give you thanks. And it is in the strong and the powerful name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. So each week, we, uh, I invite you to the table of our Lord, and this table is a constant reminder of a new, a new vision, a new tangible way, and it is a bold statement that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. So in faith and in hope, and by making peace with one another, we come to this table. This table and its elements is actually a circle of compassion that welcomes us in and is a vision of peace to the world. 
John said, Jesus said in John that they will know me, the world will know that they know me by their love for one another. So Jesus said on the night, Jesus on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save, at dinner broke the bread and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you, a self-sacrificing act of love and peace. Whenever you come to this table, I want you to eat this bread and remember me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant that comes in my blood. And whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. It has been poured out for you in peace. At our church, our table is an open table, which means that all who are open to the transforming work of Christ are welcome to this table. And you are also welcome in our community. Everyone who is open to believe in the good work of God and wants to receive the grace that comes from God is welcome to this table. And it is here where we live in attention that we follow the one who was the victim of this world and yet the one who said to his friends, don't you worry because I have overcome it. We want no barriers so our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic, so anyone who wants to come can come. I invite you to exit the left side of your row, come down one of our aisles, but come with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. At our church, we do not take communion, we receive it because all that we have is a gift. So allow these to serve you, dip the bread into the cup, and then eat it, and it be thankful. If for any reason you're unable to come down our aisle or you need assistance, just wave to Allison over here and she would be glad to come and serve you. My friends, when you are ready, I invite you to come to the Lord's table. So please come.